came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Ksenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hey, what's happening, Ksenia? <laughs> why do you sound so happy, so excited? Yeah, it's week four, episode four. Uh, how are things? Are you enjoying the summer? Yeah, I mean, it's a different kind of summer during a pandemic in Florida, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Um, yeah, same here, kind of just sitting at home. But man, at least we've got so much time to read. You've been reading a lot lately, haven't you? I mean, I've been kind of <laughs> mildly following you uh, on the Goodreads. So you've been reading like lots of good stuff. What have you been reading? Tell me. And um, after some recommendations. Um, are you? Well, mm. I guess my, like one problem that you probably picked up on is that I haven't actually read the book group book, but I have been reading other things. <laughs> and my excuse, wait, before you judge me, my excuse is that I gave the book group I've already book. judged you, it's okay. <laughs> I know. Well, I lent the book group book to my daughter, Grace to read so that's my excuse but she got like right 20 20 pages in and she was like yeah it's a bit it's a bit over my head so I, I don't actually have an excuse that's the excuse I've been given but um it's kind of falling apart because it's sitting there again ready to read you know but um so what have I been reading some like some of my reading has been related to the article I was writing about vulnerability. Do you remember the article I wrote mm. about democracy? Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. I was yeah. So I was reading Judith Butler and other feminist authors on yeah. their perspectives on vulnerability. So that was really, really uh, intellectually challenging and amazing in kind of uh, mm. May June, and then also I. I've been reading about housing. I read um, Evicted by Matthew Desmond recently, which is Oh, yeah, great. yeah. And um, what else? I, yeah, I guess just with um, being kind of new to the U.S. context, I've, like, in the last year, 18 months, I've, I've tried to read a, a lot about um, the impacts of, you know, racism. And so I've read... Mm -hmm. Um, Ibram Kendi's book How to Be an Anti-Racist I've read um, some amazing poetry by Ajamana oh yes yeah my yeah. mother was a freedom fighter that collection was great mm. and then Kianga Yamada Taylor from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation was just one of my favorites of the year amazing book cool. and yeah and if anybody doesn't follow Kianga Yamada Taylor on Twitter do it because she's one of the best people i can think of to follow on twitter so totally, yeah totally. oh I, I was reading franz fanon recently as well which is cool <laughs> of course of course of course you were so i've been reading a, a lot recently but you always read a lot like not just recently like always 
always read. I know. I mean, I'm kind of going absolutely crazy with reading here because you know I don't have to commute now, right? So I sort of have extra time, and I've been trying to read like every morning for an hour and a half. Um, you know, some serious books because um, <laughs> unlike you, I read fiction, so that is my evening reading. You know, it's very difficult to kind of to <laughs> to have time for all the books I want to read in the world. Um, but I'm I'm just so glad you told me about Judith Butler. I really enjoyed um reading, you know, that resistance and vulnerability book that we've been talking about. But also mm. I then read her conversation with Zizek and Laclau. Um it was it was hard, like yeah. it was really difficult to read. Um and I probably need to read it again. Uh, but I just found the format amazing, you know, that they just kind of posed questions to each other and then wrote about them and then kind of absolutely destroyed each other in a really nice um, <laughs> academic way. Uh, but it, it was wonderful. I just felt that, you know, I wish we all did exercises like that, you know, because to me, discussion is often missing. We kind of either agree or disagree and never discuss, you know. Oh, and then, of course, you've heard everything I had to say about Marilyn French's um, book on feminism, right? Yes. I mean, <laughs> how many how many quotes did I send you? I don't I don't even know. But I I just I just couldn't believe that you know this Beyond Power it was written in what eighty three eighty four and everything that I read and mm. the only things that were not relevant is the mention of Soviet Union. Everything else was as if nothing has happened. Um, you know, and we haven't right. progressed. Um, and it just I, I just felt so upset by that and just so kind of um, infuriated, you know. But nevertheless, um, there's so much more to read. There's always more to read. And I think you mentioned the the intrigue of like a conversation between um, philosophers as being like a really engaging mode of learning. Mm. Um, we kind of, we... Um, alluded to this when we were talking to Scott Knowles on COVID calls about um, our experiences of podcasting mm -hmm. and interviewing people and discussing things being a different way of learning than just reading a text right and it's it's like there's power in that collective of getting people together and and talking about your ideas and being able to probe and dissect each other's statements and ask follow-up questions and really get a deeper understanding and so it's really exciting today to be able to talk to people who actually do that right absolutely so today we're talking to out of the woods collective who have been publishing vital analysis investigating capitalism and its relationship to climate change um all of this basically fits right in with what we've been discussing on this podcast in season one and season two and we will continue discussing in season three so what we're going to talk about is basically the social construction of disasters uh, david alex welcome hi hi thank you thanks for having us we are all recording in the uk i believe right sunny slash rainy <laughs> uk but oh well could be worse i like that sunny sunny slash rainy because it is literally sunny slash rainy it's been <laughs> dialectics <laughs> <laughs> absolutely right please don't ask about dialectics <laughs> unpack so we are um interested in out of the woods you guys are called yourselves as a loose collective right um and um in your introduction on your blog, you're saying that we don't have any agreed position or perspectives beyond thinking that climate change is a vital area of investigation. That you're also stating that you're all broadly uh, libertarian communist um, 
uh, perspective that you share and then you know some of you scientists some of you are artists and of course David I know you personally but all of you are interested in climate change and um, environmental policy so tell us a little bit more about out of the woods and about the collective you know how did you get together what drives you to work together and to kind of investigate the social constructs of climate change and the implications of climate change um, so I've, I've not been involved since the beginning. Uh, I got involved with Out of the Woods after inviting them to participate in an event that I organised in Nottingham. Um, and actually, Alex was one of the members who came. Um, so I joined a couple of years after Out of the Woods started, although I'd been, been following their writing from the beginning and, and been really excited by it. Um, uh, Alex, I believe you've been involved since the start. Do you want to say a little bit about how it initially formed? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, the Out of the Woods is basically a, a long-term consequence of a of a call-out that went out on Twitter in 2012, I think. Um, someone who was part of the collective then just wrote on Twitter, is anyone interested in writing about the ecological crisis and how it relates to capitalism? And um, yeah, it started off as three or four of us. It's since grown a lot more than that. And um, yeah, I guess when the collective has changed substantially since the moment at which Dave joined. Um, our focus has gone from a very narrow critique of like the relationship between ecology and capitalism to a much more general one. And like, I don't know, I think Dave can probably say a bit more about that. Yeah, I think um, it's, uh, I mean, it's retained ecological crisis, I think, as the core con the kind of core concept of interest. But I think from the beginning, uh, the Woods had a very broad understanding of what ecological crisis meant. Um, but that's become more explicit in focus. So ecological crisis for us is not just what might commonly be understood as relating to ecology, the environment, nature, and I put that term in, in, in scare quotes, um, but to include things like colonial histories, borders, um, the behaviour, practices of states, um, uh, class, um, queerness, uh, and... Um, uh, issues around kind of the construction of the family, um, all I think through quite a materialist focus. Um, but yeah, so our, our understanding of ecological crisis is something quite broad, something that encompasses relations mediated through um, various social forms. Um, and that allows us to talk about things like borders as a key part of ecological crisis. So rather than an environmental crisis, which then um, borders are used as a as a response to talking about ecological crisis allows us to understand the border as part of that crisis um, and as something that is is creating the crisis. Um, so I guess this uh, sort of extension of that position that I know you adopt and that that comes through in a lot of out the woods early writing that there's no such thing as a natural disaster um, and thinking about ecological crisis as an ongoing disaster. Um, but then thinking that its effects, the effects of that disaster, or the reason it's a disaster, aren't just because the world is warming, but because of the ways that states and capital respond to that warming. Um, so if global warming drives migration, and those migrants then come into contact with violent border regimes, um, you know the border is part of what is making this a crisis. Of course, warming in and of itself is is a disaster. But the effects of that disaster are mediated through things that humans do, things that capital does, things that race, class, gender, uh, disability do.
that's how we met, isn't it? I don't know. We were talking about no natural disasters somewhere <laughs> for whatever reason, and this is how we started the conversation a couple of years ago. Um, but and we will come back to the ecological crisis um, later on in this episode. But I wonder. So how do you work together? You know, how do you write? Sort of how do you? How, what was the process? How does it all? How do you produce? For choice of a better word. <laughs> The way that's kind of evolved as a way of working is like really interesting in and of itself, at least to like someone that's invested in it as I am, and hopefully to other people as well. And uh, my my dear friend Sophie Lewis, who is also in Out of the Woods, um, talks about wanting like kith, not kin. And like that distinction is sort of really interesting because you have like kin as one's relatives about family, genealogy, descent. And like it literally comes from the Dutch kuna to give birth to. Whereas kith, on the other hand, kind of gets a bit forgotten and it means like persons known or familiar. And it comes from the old high German word, like chundida, knowledge. Um, and in its obsolete uses, like kith means to have knowledge of something or to make something friendly or familiar. And like when I think about Of the Woods, I think of the process by which we write, which is these sort of terrifying, huge, sprawling Google documents, which uh, like three or four of us are writing on at the same time in different colours, on mm -hmm. different paragraphs, uh, sometimes on the same sentence. It's like <laughs> changing and like metamorphizing as you're uh -huh. trying to finish it um, because other people are in the same piece of prose as you are. And it's this kind of beautiful organic chaos of like writing onto each other and writing over each other. And I think what's so wonderful about this process and so generative about it is like, Whatever we are writing about, you're learning so much about the subject, but also whoever else you're sort of writing with, all these people, um, most of whom were total strangers to me when we started this collective and now sort of personal friends. And like getting to know things is so entangled with getting to know other people. Like I feel like becoming familiar with ideas is so entangled with the process of becoming friends. So this intellectual work is almost always framed as an individual operation, especially in academia. But I think what's so important about Out of the Woods and the way that we work is the real work is done in common in this kind of becoming kith in coming to know things together. And I think that is like the practice that we're preaching about. This is kind of a collective of people who might have never otherwise met who are held together by a need to learn how to find ways out of a crisis. And I, I guess what I'm saying is there's like a communism inherent to the kith formed in the face of disaster. And in some ways, I think Out of the Woods is kind of an example of this. In terms of how we write, it's it's made me reflect quite a lot on what it means to be a writer and and to have a position. Um, I mean, I guess for my sins, I've always been at least quasi Deleuzean, and that sense that you're not a stable subject over time. You know, if you write something, you might go back and read it and think, "God, did I really write that?" and disagree with yourself. <laughs> So in a sense, writing in a collective is, is just an expansion of what it's like to write as an individual. You come to something and think, what does that mean? Why have I written that? Well, why has this person written that? Um, so the idea that it, it kind of dissolves the opposition between the individual and the collective, um, you sort of lose your sense of, of having a stable position um, and, and knowing things. But that's a really exciting process. Um, and actually being part of Out of the Woods has made, really made me enjoy writing again. Um, I, I had an academic career and for a number of reasons stopped being an academic in, in inverted commas. Um, and one of the reasons for that was how, how much I struggled with writing as an individual, um, partly due to academic constraints, but also I think just the, the sense of producing knowledge as an individual, um, but also the kinds of, the sort of empowering freedom that I found in writing collectively with Out of the Woods. Um, but it, we reflect a little bit this on this in the introduction of, of the book, Hope Against Hope, um, both in how it can be quite empowering 
and how that collective identity is also quite empowering because you're not bound up with reproducing yourself through having a hot take, um, and, you know, having a, a kind of zingy um, approach to an issue that kind of becomes associated with your name, which regardless of good intention, I think is, is how um, a lot of academia and also leftist publishing works. Um, so it's quite, it's nice in that sense. But at the same time, we, we reflect on how having a collective identity can obscure who we are, can mean that we're not accountable, um, and can kind of obfuscate our, our positionality. So um, all of Out of the Woods currently are in living in the UK or the US, um, and currently we're all white, um, and we are mostly cis, mostly cis men. Um, so I think we we need to be aware of that. It's not something that we hide from or shy away from, but I think perhaps we could be a little bit more explicit about that and thinking through what that means about what we write about, what we know, and also what we don't. Um, so something we're quite keen to do as the book comes out is bring it into dialogue with people um, whose experiences aren't ours, whether that's because of race, class, geography, um, or a combination of those factors, to extend um the, the the sort of discussions that we're engaged in um and not to try and apply our ideas to other contexts but to to bring them into discussion with other contexts and and to see how they change it, as that happens um so as a collective we're doing some thinking right now about how we use the proceeds of the book to enable those conversations to happen how we might expand the collective going forwards and and who we might come into to conversation with so it's it's really exciting and i think we're, we're sort of seeing the publication of the book as a moment to really do that work and, and think about how we take it forwards fascinating to hear about your process and sounds extremely exciting and must be fun to be a part of and learn and grow mm, like that. Mm. So we, we're all aware that there's a lot of um, research and science around climate change, right? But the narratives that we are using or that are prominent are not really working and not creating change. And we continue to see how capitalism wins over the environment and over people. And it seems like processes are driven by the interests of a few, right? So um, how are you guys looking at challenging that to make a difference? What kind of narratives do we need to inspire action rather than make people feel like there is just nothing they can do? So I think that the kind of despair that um, might come from, from that analysis is something that we all feel, we all have felt, and we all continue to feel. Um, and is a very logical response. Um, but of course, despair in and of itself uh, kind of prevents action. It, um, if you're despairing of something, um, you, you don't see any course out, any way out. Um, so we're interested in kind of hope as a way of mobilizing and a way of um, enabling us to think through ways out of the current situation but for us that hope is very grounded in um in existing practice and in existing struggle i think there's a tendency sometimes to see capital as already totalizing social relations um so there is no way out 
Capital constitutes the entire social field. Any resistance is futile or is absorbed or co-opted by capitalism. Um, we see capitalism as something that tends to totality, but will never fully uh, achieve that level of, of kind of social control. And so in those pockets, those cracks, those spaces, those openings, those bits that have not yet been colonized or uh, have been di all discarded already by capital um, and in, in practices that resist and in some cases draw on uh, structures and practices that predate capitalism and continue to survive, that's where we find hope. So for us, the hope is grounded in actually existing struggle, practices, organizations, spaces um, that are operating within climate change and ecological crisis. So they're happening now. Um, they push against capital. So they, they don't just have a kind of positive content of creating a new world, but they are aware that they need to come into conflict with capital, capitalism, colonialism, states, borders, etc. And perhaps they push beyond to something that we can't yet imagine. Um, and, and from those kinds of practices, we, we get hope, I think. Um, so we understand that ecological crisis is not something yet to come. It's happening. But um, there is always resistance. And from that resistance, we can, we can extrapolate um, something um, to, to kind of use a science fictional term. An example that we think a lot about in the introduction is Nauru, because Nauru is this horrific example of what we mean by ecological crisis. As once, as it, and the disaster is both an event and a consequence, it, it has happened, it is happening, and, and it will happen. So for those who don't know, Nauru is a small island in the Central Pacific out northeast of Australia, and it was annexed by Germany in the 1880s, then came under the possession of Britain, Australia, and New Zealand after World War I. And these powers were after the islands like rich phosphate deposits, which were, which the British phosphate company began to aggressively strip mine after the war. Um, and by 1968, when Nauru finally became independent, two thirds of the phosphate had gone. And while for a brief period in the 1970s, Nauru had the second highest GDP in the world, you know, second only to Saudi Arabia, then the phosphate ran out. And in the late 90s, Nauru's central bank went broke, unemployment hit 90%, the school system collapsed. And strip mining phosphate sort of digs out the deposit between large spikes of limestone. So you leave a kind of like jagged moonscape behind. and. Today, 80% of Nauru is not just infertile, but uninhabitable. So in desperation, Nauru agreed to become part of Australia's Pacific solution to its so-called refugee problem. And from 2013, two-thirds of Nauru's GDP came from Australia in return to hosting the, the detention and processing centre that Australia uses to avoid its legal responsibilities to refugees and to keep them in horrific and indefinite detention. And like, why Nauru is so important is it's kind of a story of our times. It's colonial extraction, the weaponization of debt, post-colonial power, and the violence of the border all at once. The ecological disaster is the context and precondition for the brutality of Nauru's border and Nauru's camps. Like, Nauru is the ruins, the ruining, and what might yet be ruined. It's also the struggle amidst the ruins, however. Like David's saying, it's disaster communism is kind of, it's always at work, no matter how utterly despairing the situation might be, like even amidst the camps on Nauru, there are protests and strikes and rebellions. And those protests and strikes call into question the continuation of like this response to the disaster from the border. And I, I think that's, that's, as Dave's saying, that's where we situate what we're trying to do and where our hope comes from in this material struggle against the disaster in all of its forms.
want to come back to something you said about hope being located in the struggle because a lot of uh, people that I talk to tend to try to frame your position as hopeless unless you accept the way things are because maybe it's because they they just are so convinced that we can't we can't challenge um, capital right so they think if you say we're gonna we're committed to the struggle they see that as hopeless whereas that is where um, you guys say our hope is so I just wanted mm. to come back and see if you had a thought on whether you find that pushback to locating hope in the struggle it's a really interesting question uh, not directly in that sense I don't think but what we're very we, we use hope quite specifically and quite forensically in distinction to optimism or expectation okay. or even conf- or even confidence um, we hope is not the belief that things will be okay or at least as we understand it uh, I think and that's why we call the book hope against hope because we're trying to position the hope that we see this materialist hope um, we're positioning that against the bad hope which kind of floats free from struggle uh, and functions as a kind of Pollyanna-ish fatalism. Um, things will be okay just you know because we hope um, and because we have hope that'll be fine. Um, uh, there was a, a cartoon in the Evening Standard recently which um, the, the London news, right-wing newspaper for London um, which sort of said you know everything's shut but we still have hope. Um, and as if you know, keep keep calm and carry on, but you know, keep calm and hope. Yeah. Um, and at the moment, there's a, a couple of paragraphs around coronavirus that have gone viral. Alan Sugar shared it on Twitter, which holds that complaining journalists are hampering the hopeful, positive, uplifting British response. So that kind of horrible apolitical hope melds with the nation state as the savior. Um, so we're we're really against that kind of hope, um, and I think. Any hope that is is grounded in struggle is not optimism. It's not expectation. It's not confidence, mm. and it exists only so long as struggle exists. Um, it's not something that floats free or independently of of action of of, of um, the creation of alternatives and the resistance of of the present. Yeah, you know, Rebecca Solnit's Paradise Built in Hell kind mm. of built on that, right? This idea of hope, and I know that many people have been talking about it and in the past couple of months, you know, given the kind of whole COVID-19 situation. Um, and I wish this narrative was a little bit more popular, for, for mm. choice of a better word, you know, because somehow we just forget about hope or we don't, maybe we don't want to talk about it um, because it's it's not uh, as political. Mm. Um, mm. But, you know, um, I think both David, you and Alex, you've um, alluded to the fact that, you know, all the future disasters um, are already happening. I think this this future of disasters and that the future disasters happening has really kind of um, unpacked during the COVID because all of a sudden we have seen that all those inequalities, right, and all the root causes of vulnerabilities, they've all just came to surface. Um, and we, we now hopefully understand, you know, why some people um, are affected by disasters and now by virus differently compared to other people. But what I want you to ask about is this sort of other side of the narrative um, that came around COVID-19, because there's been this massive flow of quite, you know, serious um, stuff, which is borderline with ecofascism, right? And we've seen this coming out. Um, and, you know, to me, this kind of ecofascist narratives, they, they feel quite 
dangerous. They seem quite dangerous because um, I feel that they may undermine a lot of work that has been done in climate change and disaster studies. And, you know, so how should we talk about this and whom should we talk to? I think, I mean, I totally agree we have to talk about ecofascism and I think particularly in the present moment, but I think that conversation can't really be about ecofascism alone. Uh, like, I think to focus only on ecofascism in the way that the the mainstream narrative about ecofascism often works as like a fringe or extreme ideology sort of ignores and occludes where ecofascism actually comes from, right? Which is the same place as a lot of mainstream environmentalism. So I guess where I'd start is back at that distinction of kith and kin. So if disaster communism and what we're invested in is all about making kith, then ecofascism is all about making kin. Like kin means family and genealogy, but it also means race and, and the land. And like traditional fascism is obviously all about the right of a supposedly superior race to power, resources and land and the threat posed to this innate right by an inferior race that is supposedly increasingly numerous or increasingly powerful. And I think ecofascism kind of sweeps this all up, but then emphasizes in particular the threat to the inferior race poses to the preservation of the land and thus to the preservation of the superior race. And this is because for fascists, the distinct qualities of the race are a product of the distinct qualities of the land. And, you know, that's what we see with, like, I don't know, the German Nazi party, for example, uh, when they talk about blut and bod and, you know, blood and soil. But I think the exact problem is this kind of integral relation between race and land of what I'd maybe call a kin space is not at all limited to fascism. It, it's, you know, a product of 18th century Euro European romanticism, which invents this sort of idealized relation between pure man and pristine nature, which is then put under threat by modernity. And in America, in the 1800s, this kind of gets picked up with a fetishization of the vast richness and pristine beauty of a supposedly untouched continent. And this sort of popular American rap sort of romanticism then replaces Manifest Destiny and the outright celebration of indigenous genocide with what is in effect an attempt at the denial of genocide. So where Manifest Destiny says these people don't deserve the land, American romanticism says this land never had a people. And like, I think American romanticism paints industrialization and population growth as a sort of threat to the wilderness and argues for the wilderness's conservation at all costs. So you get this in kind of Whit Whitman and Emerson and writers like that, but also people like uh, Madison Grant, who's the father of white American conservationism, and like Grant founds various national parks, the Bronx Zoo. He was close to the presidents Hoover and Roosevelt. Um, but he also wrote The Passing of the Great Race, which is the book that Hitler called his personal Bible. And I think this shows how closely these things are related. You know, Grant claimed the Nordic race was being outbred by inferior races and called for population control. And this dynamic from kin space to racialized population control continues through the 20th century. You see it in Paul Elrich's famous book, The Population Bomb, where one of the most prominent biologists in American history is arguing that ecological destruction is a, is a product of overpopulation. And like these men were not eco-fascists, but their ideas come from the same place. The idea of kin space continues to animate a lot of the environmental movement. And I think today, everything from like discourses around national parks, national nature, to please to save something for the children, all have this kind of common root of, of kin space. And I think to get back to COVID-19, this pandemic offers a kind of interruption to the processes of modernity. And for many, the chance to restore a previously pure, pristine nature kind of erupts into this interruption. But 
you know, that extraordinary popular image on Twitter of the, the photoshopped pictures of clear Venetian canals and manta rays swimming around the city or whatever, you yeah. know, the idea that humans are the virus. Like, I think the danger is that the pandemic presents this like soft critique of modernity and this soft rejection of it, but it also represents like a soft form of population control, right? You know, mm. there's mass death without necessarily distinct mass murderers. And I think that's perhaps where the real danger is as well. You know, the reason people are so susceptible to this is because it's so encoded into the mainstream environmental movement, you know, future, nature, land, family. All of those things are drawn on by like very mainstream commentators. And so I think what we have to do is we have to destroy this desire for the preservation of kin space with an anti-colonial demand for land back and the destruction of the myths of like European exceptionalism and empty continents for it to expand into. I don't think eco-fascism is just a perversion of mainstream environmentalism. I think it's a like improper emphasis of it. It it says loudly what environmentalism prefers to leave unsaid. And I think the current crisis is merely highlighting tendencies which are deep within the standard environmental movement. I think a lot of this isn't even eco-fascism. It's just things that the environmental movement tends to leave quiet. Mm. Mm. There's an amazing thread on on Twitter by uh, Boo Ruba Han- Hansen. Um, who's an American writer on on kind of on on these issues? Um, who's who's quite critical of the use of the fra- the, the term eco fascist? And I should say that we've we've used it. Um, I think probably more on our Twitter account than in our writings. I think we've been a bit more cautious in our in our writing, um, but we we probably throw it around sometimes on Twitter a little bit too liberally. Um, and and Boo Rubner Hansen um, makes a very similar argument to what to, to the one Alex has just made, but also talks about the, the relationship to liberalism and, and the liberal theory of the market, um, and and that the implication of liberal theories of the market and colonialism. So, saying you know um, about the the response to the famine in India, which was to allow people to die because it was a natural disaster, and that was the natural working of the market. Um, and, and tying that into the British government's supposed herd immunity response to COVID nineteen, that um, you know there's a there's a kind of natural way to allow this to play out, but of course nature is always uh, constructed and always um, imbued with the the material inequalities of our world. So I think um, ecofascism is a kind of logical endpoint of many of the, as Alex says, the, the kind of positions implicit to mainstream widespread approaches to responses to ecological catastrophe, um, including the spread of, of COVID-19. So it seems like um, in your new book, Hope Against Hope, Writings on Ecological Crisis, that your collective is going to unpack some of these themes that we've just been touching on. So maybe you could tell us a bit more about it. What's it going to be like? Who is your audience? Why are you writing it right now? So I, I guess I'd sort of tell people that it's a, it's a collection of essays for people who understand the necessity of doing something, but who sense there is a problem or a series of deep problems with what main environmentalism proposes to do about that. Um, I'd say it's accessible, but it's also critical. It's sort of somewhere in its form between a newspaper long read and an academic text. And it's also a series of short essays. Some are introductions, some are critiques, some are almost manifestos. Um, But it doesn't need to be read in any particular order. Uh, It's organised around four key themes which we've pulled out in our writing. So it's about borders, it's about natures, it's about futures, and it's about strategies. And I think in general, our thought kind of progresses in, in the same way about each problem. 
we focus on like a material conjuncture, a material problematic. And from there, we draw out some kind of critical explanations. And then from those explanations, we turn to some practical proposals about what is to be done. Um, like, I don't think anyone would try and pretend this is anything other than a political text. Like, we're, we, we are making no attempt to hide our politics whatsoever. You know, the last essay is called Disaster Communism, and that is, is exactly what it's calling for. Like, um, mm. I don't think we're trying to sell it as anything other than that. But yeah, I think it's a book that we we want to be read outside academic circles and which I think tries to take ideas that are perhaps circulating in academic circles and haven't gone towards struggle, but perhaps probably more that we're taking ideas which we have encountered in struggle, in the process of struggle, and trying to put them as a as a critique or as a as a response to a lot of stuff that is said in academia and particularly on the academic left. So yeah, I think it, it it's somewhere between those two spaces um, in that kind of uncertain zone between. We see it over and over again, particularly in disaster studies, that sometimes somehow disasters are treated as a completely apolitical event, right? And the way many people write about them are completely neutral, just kind of a reporting almost um, on, you know, scientific findings or particular, uh, discussing particular issues without connecting to politics at all, which uh, to me never works, you know, because disasters are always political and climate change is political and sort of anything that is happening in that context is political. Can I just say something very quickly about like ruins and maybe about politics too? Yeah, yeah, go. It's this quote which probably everyone's heard before, but it's from this interview in 1936 in the midst of the Spanish Civil War, where this Canadian journalist Von Parson manages to get an interview with the like famous anarchist Buenaventura Daruti after his forces had defeated the fascists at the town of Aragon, and Daruti is giving this answer about the fact that the anarchists don't expect help from any government, Soviet or otherwise, in, in their fight against fascism. They understand that they are in this struggle alone. And von Passen is sort of interjecting and he says, but how can you say this? You will be sitting on a pile of ruins. And Daruti looks at him and he says, well, we have always lived in slums and holes in the wall. We will know how to accommodate ourselves for a time. For you must not forget, we can also build. It is we, the workers, who built these palaces and cities here in Spain and in America and everywhere. We, the workers, can build others to take their place and better ones. We are not in the least afraid of ruins. And just as the disaster exists across multiple times, so too does the response to it. You know, life amidst the ruins has happened, is happening, will happen. And Daruti says that the, the working class, the oppressed, the racialized, the gendered have always lived in holes in the wall, but they are also always building something beyond that. I think what Daruti is sort of telling von Parson that amidst the violence, you know, we carry a new world here in our hearts and that world is growing this minute. You know, hope against hope is knowing no one is coming to save us and having total faith in our capacity to save each other. Um, this is the hope that is sort of in our hands as much as in our hearts. And this is the real movement that could yet change everything. And I think for Out of the Woods, this is what it means to be invested in disaster communism. It's amazing. Fantastic. This is uh, absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. 
You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. So you've been listening to Ksenia, Jason and two of us from Out of the Woods on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.